The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Against All Odds Uguayan Air Force Flight 571 was a flight chartered by the Old Christians rugby team from Montevideo that would take them to Santiago in Chile to play a match. They left Carrasco International Airport on the 12th of October 1972 in a Fairchild FH-227D twin-engine turboprop. But poor weather over the Andes prevented them from attempting a crossing that day, so they landed at Mendoza in Argentina to wait for conditions to improve. The next day, the aircraft took off to continue the journey. It hadn't been an easy decision since the weather wasn't much better, but the pilots agreed to try. In part, remembered Madeleine Rodriguez, because we put pressure on them. On board were five crew and 40 passengers, made up of players, club members, friends and family, all of whom had shared the cost. The team were veterans from their old school, the Christian Brothers College, and they had been friends for years. The mood on board was good. Old rugby mates together, laughing, joking and singing, as young men do. The Fairchild wasn't able to fly over the Andes, which rise to around 23,000 feet, so the pilots plotted a course which took them south until they reached the Pass of Planchon, which they could use to safely cross. About an hour after takeoff, the pilot notified air traffic that he was over the pass and, shortly after, that he had reached Curico, about 110 miles south of Santiago, and was turning north to head for the city. How the captain misjudged his position is unknown. Perhaps an unexpected headwind or a misreading of a beacon misled him, but, based on their reported position, air traffic cleared him to descend. Shortly after, radio contact was lost. Unbeknown to everyone, the Fairchild was 55 miles from its reported position, still deep in the Andes, and descending into cloud whilst over the mountains. The aircraft clipped a peak just below 14,000 feet, severing the starboard wing, which was thrown back with such force that it cut off the vertical stabiliser, leaving a gaping hole in the rear of the fuselage. The aircraft then struck a second peak, which severed the port wing and left the aircraft as just a fuselage flying through the air. One of the propellers sliced through the body of the aircraft as it broke free. The fuselage hit the ground and slid down a steep mountain slope before finally coming to rest in a snowbank. Robert Canessa was a 19-year-old medical student who was on board. He remembered that the engines were at full power when they struck the side of the mountain. There was a shattering explosion and the hideous sound of tearing metal as the aircraft was tossed into a sickening, spinning descent. The fuselage hit the snowy mountain's side and careered down it like a crazy toboggan. He gripped his seat, waiting for oblivion. But it never came. When the aircraft came to a violent halt, it ripped his seat from the floor, forcing it into the one in front. The whole line of seats piled up against the cockpit door, but Roberto was still alive. After the dramatic 
post-crash silence. He started to hear the moans and cries of the injured, along with the stink of aviation fuel. Looking around, he could see that the body of the aircraft had been torn open. Indeed, the tail section was missing entirely, and he could see mountains all around. There was a blizzard that was whipping everything around and lashing him with cold. Like shadows from another world, other survivors started to appear. Heads and hands were moving amongst the tangle of seats and wreckage. He turned around to see his old friend and fellow medical student, Gustavo Zibino, emerge, also amazingly unharmed. They moved together through the mangled fuselage, trying to see where they could help. Many had lost their lives. Others were horribly maimed and injured. The cold was appalling. From the comfortable temperature in the cabin, it was now 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, over 20 below in centigrade. They rummaged through the luggage, looking for jackets and sweaters to wear, and T-shirts to use as bandages. They did their best to treat wounds, feel for pulses, and console the other survivors, but darkness quickly fell. Occasionally they used a lighter to see, but they were terrified of igniting the spilt fuel. Hands covered in the blood of the dying, Roberto curled up in a corner to sleep. In the morning they assessed the situation. Twelve had died in the initial crash, and a further six succumbed to their wounds overnight. Twenty-seven were left alive to face the near-impossible task of surviving in this hostile environment, many with severe injuries. The pilot had already died, and the co-pilot died the next day. He did his best to describe where they were, but of course his estimation was grossly wrong. The altitude and the cold was debilitating, every physical effort exhausting. But some of the survivors were from the rugby team, fit young men who worked hard to survive. Apart from what clothing they could salvage from the luggage, there wasn't much help in what was left of the aircraft. A few chocolate bars, snacks and bottles of wine which they pooled. Despite being surrounded by frozen water, without a way to melt it, they might as well have been in a desert. It was Philo Strauch who devised a way to melt the snow by warming metal in the sunlight and dripping the water into used bottles. They found a little transistor radio and listened to news of the rescue attempts being made. They occasionally heard and saw aircraft flying near, but the white fuselage of their aircraft, buried in the snow, was near invisible. They tried laying out luggage in a cross and trampling SOS in the snow, but the days passed and nobody came. Tragedy mounted on tragedy. Fernando Parado had been travelling with his mother and little sister, and he lay in a coma, but eventually he came around, to discover that his mother hadn't survived the initial crash and his sister was badly injured. He nursed her in his arms until she died a few days later. The hardest thing to me, he said, was burying my mother and sister with my own hands in the ice. After eight days of misery, cold, pain and death, the survivors listened with horror 
as the authorities had decided to give up the search. On hearing the news, many began to sob and pray, all except Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains. As the hopelessness of the situation enveloped them, they were angry when Gustavo Nicolich shouted that it was good news. Why the hell is that good news? someone asked angrily. Because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own, he replied. One of the reasons that this accident remains such a strong memory for those of us who have heard the story before is because of what happened next. Even with strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly. There was no natural vegetation or animals in the snow-covered mountain. The group survived by collectively deciding to eat flesh from the bodies of their dead comrades. This decision was not taken lightly, and it caused much friction, as most of the dead were classmates, close friends, or even relatives. As Fernando explained, at high altitude, the body's calorific needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest, with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway. Again and again we scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We even tried to eat strips of leather torn from the luggage. Again and again I came to the same conclusion. There was nothing here but aluminium plastic, ice and rock. All of the passengers, living and dead, were devout Roman Catholics, and there were several with deep reservations. Some rationalized the act of necrotic cannibalism as similar to the ritual of Holy Communion. Others remembered the verse, No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The alternative was effectively suicide through starvation, in itself a mortal sin. In addition to the deep moral dilemma, the physical act of cutting up the bodies of friends and loved ones was traumatic beyond belief, let alone the actual consumption of the raw meat. In an attempt to make it more palatable, they left strips of flesh out on the aircraft fuselage to dry. As if they hadn't suffered enough, 15 days after the accident, another disaster struck. They were preparing to spend another night in the shelter of the aircraft when an avalanche descended down the mountain, and with devastating force it poured into the open end of the fuselage, burying all those who were lying down. The ones who were safe desperately tried to dig their friends out, but eight had suffocated, crushed under the snow, leaving only nineteen alive. With their strength waning, dirty, unkempt, and in desperate straits, the fittest amongst them started to look for a way down from their mountainous trap. Despite not having proper equipment or clothing, they started to look further afield and eventually found the tail of the fair child. In that was some more luggage, food and bodies, and some more materials they might use. Batteries were found and connected to the aircraft radio, but not 
realizing that they needed alternating current, that was unsuccessful. However, at least the transistor radio they had still worked, and they heard that a C-47 from the Ukrainian Air Force had renewed the search. Great news! The search aircraft had seen a cross. Surely it must be the one that they laid out near the crash site. They waited eagerly, only to have their hopes dashed again. The cross that had been seen was one made by a team of meteorologists. Having crashed on the 13th of October, it was now well into December. Their supply of cadavers to consume was almost gone, and they were all in dreadful physical condition. Snow blindness, poor nutrition, lingering injury, mental and physical fatigue had all taken their toll. There had been more deaths, and arguments and despair threatened to engulf them. However, two friends felt sure that they could survive an attempt to walk out. Fernando Parado and Roberto Canessa had been trying to climb nearby ridges to look for an escape path, putting aside the difficulty of walking through waist-deep snow without proper equipment and the problems of exertion at high altitude in their weakened state, they still managed to climb some of the high ground surrounding them, but all they saw were fields of fearsome mountains. It was apparent that the only way out was to climb the mountain to the west, but without a way to survive the appalling cold at night, they knew they would soon die. They made a crude sleeping bag from the aircraft insulation that they were able to recover from the tail section, and Fernando Parado, Antonio Vizintin, and Roberto Canessa began to trek up the mountain. The thin air made it almost impossibly hard for them, but at least they were able to survive the nights, if not sleep. They struggled upwards for three days, but on reaching the summit at over 15,000 feet, they saw that they were still tens of miles from the green valleys of Chile. Parado felt sure he could see a small Y in the distance that might be a way out, but it was going to take much longer than they had prepared for, and they didn't have enough food. They sent Vizentin back to the crash site and carried on without him. Parado and Canessa hiked for several more days. First, they were able to reach the narrow valley that Parado had seen from the top of the mountain, where they first found the start of a river. This they followed until they reached the edge of the snow line, and then, for the first time in months, they were able to sleep through the night. Gradually, they started to see evidence of human presence, and finally, on the ninth day, they saw some cows. That evening, as they gathered firewood, they saw a man on a horse riding on the other bank of the river. They tried to shout over the rushing water, kneeling and imploring, and they weren't sure that they had been understood, but the man shouted back, Tomorrow. He returned the next day with a loaf and a rock wrapped with paper and a pen. Whilst the starving men ate, they wrote about the crash and asked for help. The Catalan read the message and signed that he understood. With news of where the survivors were, a rescue was soon organised. Helicopters were dispatched to the crash site, 
but initially only half of those still alive could be picked up. The rest spent yet another night of discomfort, but eventually on December the 23rd, after 72 days, the last 16 survivors were brought to safety. The aftermath of such a traumatic event was distressing, particularly when the rumours of cannibalism started to leak out. Some tabloid papers were damning, but generally it was understood what an appalling decision it must have been and how much the survivors fought their consciences before making the awful choice. The Catholic Church eventually announced that the men had all been absolved of any sin, and the collective decision to write their own story in full helped. So when the book Alive was published, it did much to sway public opinion. The rescuers and a Chilean priest later returned to the crash site and buried the bodies of the dead, not far from the aircraft. Close to the grave, they built a stone pile surmounted by a large iron cross, upon which is written, Close, O God, to you. Music for today's Plain Tales from bensound.com